And hello, this is uh, Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist. Today we're going to be discussing leaky gut syndrome. A very confusing subject. I usually like to start off the discussion of leaky gut syndrome by telling everyone a very typical situation that we get. It's very common that I'll have patients come to me who will tell me that they've been treating their leaky gut for over 10 years. They'll come in with a list of all kinds of supplements that they've taken for leaky gut. And they'll tell me that they've been doing this and doing this and it just, for some reason, is not getting better. Well, one of my first questions to them is, how does your leaky gut test look? Has your leaky gut test improved? Has it gotten worse? And they'll say, oh, well, I've never tested for leaky gut. I never even knew there was a test for that. Besides, I know I have it from my symptoms. So I will then tell them, well, we need to test you for it. Uh, if for no other reason, just to see how bad it is. And they're usually quite insistent that they do not need to be tested for it because they know they have it. Well, lo and behold, we test them for it. And uh, very often, they don't have it. And easily, five out of 10 people who I think have leaky gut when I hear their symptoms and then I test them do not have leaky gut. Well, the reason for this is because the symptoms of leaky gut overlap into other similar neighboring conditions like candida, like mercury toxicity, like just a generalized dysbiosis, like parasite infections, uh, etc. Even gluten problems, gluten intolerance, Crohn's disease, all mimic the symptoms of leaky gut. So this makes it a confusing, confusing issue. Now, what leaky gut is exactly? It's a condition where the intestinal tract has become porous. Other people would describe it as it's a condition where the intestinal membranes at certain points or at certain places become too thin. Essentially, there's a breakdown of the collagen in the intestinal tract, usually from infections. Because when we have intestinal infections, the infection does this, and intestinally it does the same thing as in, you can imagine an, an uh, infection on your skin. Imagine if you had an infection on your hand or your finger, you would see the membrane would swell and it would get thinner and you would see some blood and oozing. Well, it's really not that much different in your intestinal tract. It's virtually the same thing. So when one has chronic infections in their intestinal tract and or chronic allergic reactions going on in the intestinal tract, this is a, something which will cause the membrane there to become too porous or too thin, and it leaks. So when, you're, when you have leaky gut, the intestinal cells actually separate, and rather than material being absorbed by the intestinal villi, which are the little hair-like creatures that absorb nutrients selectively, and then pull them into your tiny blood vessels, what you get are substances passing through your intestinal tract that literally fall, be fall between the cracks and enter your bloodstream, where normally they would never be allowed to enter. The normal gut integrity would protect you against having these things enter your bloodstream.
quite a difference from a normal digestive tract. A perforated intestinal tract or a perforated colon is similar in concept, but quite a different story. Someone who has a perforated intestinal tract or a perforated colon uh, is easily going to become develop septus and other extreme infections, which is different than leaky gut. The leaky gut, you consider a much milder form of damage in the intestinal tract than someone who has a who literally has the break in the membrane lining. Now, people who have leaky gut develop an interesting group of symptoms, and they usually develop them gradually. One of the most common symptoms that I've found in people who have leaky gut is chemical intolerance or environmental illness. This usually demonstrates in the person as the person not being able to tolerate being around cigarette smoke, perfume, cleaning solutions, any strong chemical odor or smell usually sets the person into a headache or feeling very unwell to the point where they may need to lie down. Um, this may cause a, a condition where the person literally is bedridden and not able to leave their apartment or leave their house because they can't tolerate the outside. People with this condition usually become very allergic. They're, they're, if they had airborne allergens in the past, the airborne allergens would heighten. If they had food allergies in the past, the food allergies would heighten. They can become very intolerant to medications, vitamins, and herbs. That uh, very often is a hallmark of someone who has leaky gut. Intolerant to vitamins, medication, and herbs. That's also a condition that you find in people who have abnormally low stomach acid, too. People with leaky gut do not generally exhibit intestinal pain. Um, this is one of the made-up symptoms that has occurred out there on the Internet, that people with leaky gut have pain all over the right side or pain all over the left side. This is... Not true at all. People with leaky gut have not acquired a significant amount of damage to the gut lining that would cause pain. It doesn't mean the person may not, you may not find a case where uh, one has this pain, but it's not considered to be a typical symptom of leaky gut. Leaky gut essentially creates an autoimmune condition or state in the body. Because the condition of leaky gut causes the person to be so allergic and so reactive, it's typical that you'll find blood chemistries elevated, like the ANA is typically blood elevated. The R factor, which is rheumatoid arthritic factor, is very typically elevated. You can often find elevated eosinophils in the blood. In the blood. Monocytes sometimes are elevated in the blood in the patient with leaky gut. And you will occasionally find some protein abnormalities. You can find a very high albumin to globulin ratio in these people. Sometimes you'll find elevated liver enzymes. Sometimes, not always. 
So in the blood, there are certain parameters you can look at which are suggestive of leaky gut, but definitely are not confirmed to be an indication of leaky gut. There are various blood tests out there which are seeking to find allergies and different allergy reactions in people which are being used to identify leaky gut. There are a few that are up and coming right now which are promising and which can perhaps identify subclinical types of leaky gut which we may not have been able to identify before. There is a breath test for leaky gut which identifies uh, levels of hydrogen which we, we associate with perhaps having leaky gut. But the, the true original test for leaky gut is the lactulose mannitol recovery test. The lactulose mannitol recovery test was developed in the universities and the idea behind the test is that we give the person a accurately, uh, let's say, dosed drink of lactulose and mannitol. They take this drink and thereafter they collect their urine. Usually the urine's collected for six hours after you take the drink. The amount of lactulose and mannitol, which was in the drink, of course, is known precisely by the lab conducting this test. So they then look to re seek the recovery of this in the urine. The amount of lactulose and mannitol that the person finds in their urine reflects the degree of leaky gut they have or don't have. Lactulose and mannitol are two sugars that exist in nature. There are, there are two very different size molecule. So therefore, the amount of them that you're absorbing could be quite indicative of leaky gut if you're absorbing too much of them. And the first type, the most common type of leaky gut, the person absorbs an excess amount of lactulose. That's the most common that we find. In the more severe types of leaky gut, the person's absorbing excess lactulose and excess mannitol. Occasionally, you'll find people with leaky gut absorbing excess mannitol, but not lactulose. Uh, and another way around this, uh, looking at just the absolute level of the sugar, would be to look at the ratio between lactulose and mannitol. If the person, let's say, was dehydrated and they weren't urinating a lot, but yet they had a very high level of lactulose to mannitol, that could suggest the first type of leaky gut. So in testing for leaky gut, we're essentially looking to see if particle sizes are getting into the bloodstream, which normally would be barred or limited. This was the traditional and original test for leaky gut syndrome, as I said, developed in the universities, which then became the prize of the Great Smokies Lab uh, the Great Smokies Lab existed in the 80s and, the, early, and the, the 90s. They were eventually taken over by Genova Lab, who since has uh, merged also with the Metametrics Lab. And this is the original test for leaky gut syndrome. Now, there are many people who have taken this test and have not had leaky gut, yet they feel that they have the symptoms. Perhaps the answer to these people 
lies in the newer blood work, which has been developed by a few labs. I'm not going to mention their names today. Uh, because I'm not endorsing these tests at this point. Uh, but these laboratories have developed blood tests which are looking for antigens and other particles which would be indicative of someone having allergic reactions in their intestinal tract that allow undigested matter and material to seep into the bloodstream from the intestines. Um, I like to look at it, if, we've, if we're going to consider for a minute these blood tests are legitimate and they actually are showing a form of leaky gut, at this point in time, I would tend to classify this type of leaky gut as being a subclinical type of leaky gut. The clinical forms of leaky gut being observed in the original lactulostomanitol test. These subclinical types of leaky gut are there and they are transient. I think, which is the key to understanding them. They don't occur all the time and they don't mean the person has a permanent state of leaky gut. In these transient, transient types of leaky gut, the person is consuming something which they're reactive to. The allergic reaction that takes place in the gut membrane causes a temporary separation of the cells there or a leak. And then the material leaks into the bloodstream when the inflammation and whatnot comes down from that reaction, the cells come back together again and the leak seals, like the little Dutch boy putting his finger in the den, and then it's over. So that would be a transient form of leaky gut. Now the good thing about these blood tests is that they're able to identify if these reactions are going on generally you don't have to only take the blood test at the time you're having such an episode or reaction for it to test positive. So this is a, a good thing in regarding these blood tests. It's, a, it's very hopeful in that they'll be able to then determine leaky gut conditions in the future where one is not reacting to the lactulose mannitol recovery test, which is the original type of test. Now, how does somebody get leaky gut? That's a good question. Someone just, yeah, someone just emailed that question in, which I think is an appropriate time for us to take that up. Well, how do you get leaky gut? It's pretty easy. You have to have some severe insults to your intestinal tract for that to develop. Because remember, leaky gut is a condition where the intestinal tract becomes porous, the membrane's too thin, it's essentially becoming worn, and this allows things to pass into the bloodstream, which normally wouldn't be allowed to. So infections become a top on the chart with leaky gut. Candidiasis is probably the main infection that people get that would cause leaky gut. However, other infections can also cause leaky gut. A person can develop leaky gut by chronic parasite infections. Certain bacterial infections could easily cause leaky gut. Bacteria like Bacillus, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, very easily could cause leaky gut. A person who's in the hospital for a while and starts to develop diarrhea, as many people do, because of the chronic infections you can pick up in the hospital, can easily develop leaky gut as a result of that. Now, that's 
pretty bad because the last thing you want to develop when you're in the hospital is leaky gut, which is something that can further deplete or lower your immunity and also in its own way cause malabsorption. Being that the hospitals are germ fests and the food they serve in hospitals is historically not always that nutritious. Toxic metals are known to cause leaky gut. Probably the key one would be mercury. However, any heavy metal which has the ability to damage or irritate an, an, an intestinal membrane or a mucous membrane is easy, easily going to cause leaky gut. If someone has very chronic intestinal allergies, uh, that will also lead to the development of leaky gut. Uh, repetitive cases of food poisoning. A uh, person who goes to Mexico there, therefore, then develops all types of digestive problems, has diarrhea for weeks on end, you see. Here's a person who's going to develop leaky gut. Alcoholism, another condition which causes leaky gut because of the irritation that alcohol will cause to the intestinal tract. Not unusual that alcoholics develop ulcers. Well, the uh, same would be for leaky gut. The alcoholic also can develop intestinal permeability just as well as a gastric ulcer or a duodenal ulcer because of the irritation of the alcohol. Malnutrition can occur and cause leaky gut. This would be something that would typically happen in the elderly or people who are drug addicts of some type, where their nutrition is just so poor that they can't consume enough nutrients to maintain a good, strong, solid integrity of that gut lining. The intestinal lining, perhaps more so than any other tissue, is constantly repairing itself, renewing itself, and sloughing off its old skin so somewhat, like a snake would. So that makes having the proper nutrients to support that function even more important than in other functions of the body. So you will see malnutrition in elderly people, particularly people who have that shake. Um, many years ago, I did a bit of an in-house in or in-practice uh, trial, let's say, where I particularly asked my patients to refer to me elderly people they knew who had that uh, famous elderly person shake. And when we tested them, we found that the probably 85%, I think it was, of them, of them, and I think we had about 17 people that we tested, uh, they were all grossly magnesium deficient and also all had leaky gut syndrome. Now, compared to, we compared that to the data that we had uh, on uh, about the same amount, I think it was 20 people of the same age who didn't have that symptom of the shake. And we found out that the uh, people in that group that were magnesium deficient and had leaky gut were only down to maybe 10% or less. So seeing that shake in an elderly person is a big hint that there's, there's, there's one who has leaky gut. Yes, and also the magnesium problems. So leaky gut, as I mentioned earlier, is an autoimmune condition. 
And unfortunately, what we find in, in this is that it's easy for me to say here on the show that leaky gut is an autoimmune condition, but in real life, what that actually means and what happens is a much more horrible thing because you will find leaky gut at the bottom of many cases of rheumatoid arthritis, which is well recognized as an autoimmune condition. Thyroid conditions are highly associated with leaky gut. Thyroid autoimmune in particular has been a uh, condition of great interest for me. I first noticed it years ago when I was working with the BioCybernetics program and we found people who were manifesting low thyroid. The medication they were taking wasn't really working that well. And we then found what vitamins and nutrients they needed to accentuate the effects of the medication. We put them on these products and they got worse, which is the complete opposite of what you would expect, unless the person was in an autoimmune state. So at that point, we would have their antibodies, thyroid antibodies tested to see if indeed they were in an autoimmune state and uh, most definitely they were. So I can say with confidence that all thyroid autoimmune conditions are as a result of leaky gut syndrome. I've seen this over and over again. What you, uh, what you see that happens in this condition is the, because the person is autoimmune, you'll see uh, thyroid peroxidase antibodies and some of the other antibodies elevate. And anything that the person does to try to help their thyroid that's natural, unfortunately, will uh, ricochet on the person and actually make them worse. This is one of the rare times where doing something natural actually doesn't work for the person and makes them and actually makes them worse is where they're in a thyroid or adrenal for that matter autoimmune condition there's the tendency to want to treat people who have thyroid autoimmune or adrenal autoimmune with nutrients which help to increase the function of the thyroid in the adrenal and also with uh, glandular material from thyroid and adrenal and this most definitely makes the person worse. What you need to do, which is my uh, trick secret here, is when you have some, somebody who has autoimmune conditions of the thyroid, you need to get them on thyroid substances which are gonna be non-allergic to them. The worst thing you can do is put them on natural things which are gonna cause the immune system to react even more against their thyroid or their adrenal glands. This is, these are rare cases where I would actually recommend the person go on artificial hormones because the advantage of the person, let's say, who has Hashimoto's disease, who goes on an artificial hormone, synthetic uh, T, T4, let's say, well, the body, this is, uh, the synthetic T4 is not natural enough to cause the body to react against it. See, that's the, that's the catch-22 of this. The synthetic hormone is just not natural enough for the body's immune system to recognize it as thyroid convincingly enough. And you can actually 
increase the person's thyroid function enough using that to suppress the overactivity of their thymus gland, which will lower the whole autoimmune response. This is, of course, only if you correct leaky gut. Now, now let's understand that. That's not a, uh, I think I might have jumped a little bit there. That's not something that you would do at the onset. But when you're dealing with someone who comes to you, they say they have Hashimoto's disease, well, the first thing you do is you test them for leaky gut and candidiasis. And if they have so, which normally they would, you would resolve their candidiasis and leaky gut, and then you would seek to balance the, the thyroid and the thymus gland in that manner. We've also found that parotid gland tissue can make dramatic effects on Hashimoto's disease. People who are treated with parotid tissue who have Hashimoto's can see their antibodies lower down to normal in just a few months where they might have been elevated for decades. And this is because the parotid gland helps regulate autoimmune responses and antibody responses. So in any autoimmune case that we deal with, if we're dealing with rheumatoid arthritis, if it's Hashimoto's disease, if it's MS, regardless of what it is, the first thing that we're always interested in doing is to see if the person has leaky gut and then resolve the leaky gut because if we, if we don't do that, we know that it's going to be just that much more difficult to resolve their, their case in general. This, what it, this explains why many people who go on programs that look like they're perfectly good programs for, for arthritis or for Hashimoto's or some such autoimmune condition really don't get any better and sometimes react adversely to the program. And they actually seem to get worse. Well, this is because you're once again giving the person herbs or vitamins or nutrients when they're in a condition of having candidiasis and leaky gut, which is the, the condition that they're most likely to have an adverse reaction to the vitamin, the nutrient, or the medication. So in the case of rheumatoid arthritis or Hashimoto's or any such autoimmune condition, our goal is always to first resolve the candidiasis and the leaky gut, and then we will take a look at what we need to do from a metabolic standpoint to help the body in repairing the rheumatoid arthritis or the Hashimoto's disease. In looking at diet for a person with Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, people will always ask, well, what's the best type of diet? And what you're always going to find true is that the, per the person goes on a diet for leaky gut syndrome, even though that's not thought of as being a prescribed diet for these other conditions, that's where you'll see the best results. If you take a patient with Hashimoto's and put them on a diet for leaky gut patients, they'll do better. They'll, they'll, they will have more symptomatic improvements. Same thing for the person with rheumatoid arthritis. What's the correct diet for a patient with rheumatoid arthritis? You put them on a candida diet slash leaky gut diet. That's where they're going to get the most improvement because every time the person who has Hashimoto's or has rheumatoid arthritis eats an offending food to his candida and leaky gut condition, that's where his, the inflammation to his rheumatoid arthritis worsens. That's where the antibody production of his Hashimoto's against his own thyroid worsens. The foods that seem to be the most offensive to the patient who has leaky gut 
of course, would be the same foods that would aggravate candida. Since candida is usually a part of the leaky gut syndrome, and since candida usually is part of the leaky gut in general, the foods that you eat that would worsen candida would worsen leaky gut. Fermented foods are interesting because fermented foods, for some reason, seem to be the most allergic to the person who has leaky gut syndrome. Regardless of the fact that in many cases fermented foods are thought of as being healthy for other reasons, while the person is in the acute stage or the active stage of having leaky gut, these fermented foods can aggravate the person's leaky gut condition. Now, for those of you who may find this confusing, well, what are fermented foods? Because that's not something typically you see in the supermarket. There's not an aisle or section that says fermented foods. Fermented foods are foods which undergo fermentation. So this would be vegetables <coughs> and foods that are pickled, typically. It would be tofu and tempeh, which undergo fermentation. Miso undergoes fermentation. Yogurt, kefir, undergo fermentation. So any food that undergoes a fermentation process in its production potentially could aggravate a person with leaky gut. Now, they don't necessarily have to aggravate them, but that's possible. So you would tend to want to avoid the person with leaky gut consuming a lot of fermented foods. It's very typical that you're going to find the person with leaky gut has a host of allergies. Very often, they are allergic to many of the foods that the person with candida typically should not eat. Very often, you find the person with leaky gut has wheat allergies. And there's, there is some discussion and some argument as to whether or not everyone with leaky gut simply has Crohn's disease or, or gluten intolerance or some, some such thing as opposed to having leaky gut as a condition itself. <laughs> well, I can certainly tell you that wheat tends to be one of the most offensive foods for the person who has leaky gut in general. That's been my experience. Uh, the big allergens, uh, I believe uh, we have wheat, soy, corn, peanuts, milk, Those are your top five, most likely. Very common that they are offensive to the person with leaky gut. But doing a ALCAT test for food allergies is usually very helpful for the person with leaky gut because when you do that, with that testing and you find what the person's allergic to, having them withdraw from those foods helps them heal leaky gut. So in, as far as leaky gut treatment goes, that would be one of the first steps. Uh, this is dietary related treatment would be to get them to abstain from foods they're allergic to. Because every time the person with leaky gut eats something they're allergic to, they're damaging, re-damaging the condition. Every time they have an allergic reaction in their gut from eating an allergic food, they're damaging the leaky gut again. So in the ideal leaky gut treatment, they would be on a candida diet, 
they would be avoiding fermented foods, particularly if they're reactive to them. And they would be avoiding the foods that they're most allergic to per an ALCAT test. This is, a, this is one way you can create an environment in the intestinal tract that would help the leaky gut to heal. The nutrients that are generally used to help leaky gut to heal, would, you would first start out with digestive enzymes. Uh, a wide spectrum of digestive en enzymes and hydrochloric acid are necessary to heal the leaky gut because you need the person digesting their food. You don't need the person consuming food that's going to be partially digested only to cause another allergic reaction in their body. So the use of digestive enzymes and digestive supplements helps reduce the amount of food the person's going to consume, which will remain undigested and therefore become allergic to them. Because remember, most food allergies always begin with the food you're allergic to not being properly digested and then the body considering that food particle to be foreign. The body rarely, if ever, dig uh, develops a food allergy to a food that's properly digested. Glutamine is a rather controversial in some, way, in some ways amino acid, which is typically used to heal leaky gut. Uh, glutamine is involved in the, the turnover of the, uh, let's say, the repair of intestinal cells, which is why it's so important for the leaky gut. Some people can react badly to glutamine for other reasons, which we're not going to cover today. Um, I will just say that glutamine is not totally innocent as a supplement. It can cause bad reactions in some people. But in those people who can tolerate it, glutamine does help accelerate the repair of the leaky gut. Butyric acid supplements. Typically, they will be called calcium, magnesium, butyrate, or some type of butyrate. And butyric acid is produced by your intestinal cells as a fuel and a substance of regeneration. Butyric acid actually helps to repair and heal leaky gut. And it makes it one of the top three supplements used in a leaky gut treatment plan. The next substance, which is very important to repair leaky gut, um, would be the mucins. Mucins are produced by all mammals. They are essentially like a wax that you put on your floor or if you were to wax your car. It serves as a thin protective membrane. And the mucin lining is most likely the first thing which is damaged when a person's beginning to develop leaky gut. And again, as I was saying, try to think of the mucin lining as if you were to wax your car or wax your floor. It's the first protective layer there that stops damage from occurring to your car or to your floor. Mucins are available in supplement form. And when you take them, you're actually laying down the first protective barrier to get that leaky gut to heal. So that would make the mucin supplement the third most important healing factor to a leaky gut program. You will find products out there for leaky gut which will contain some type of intestinal growth factor. These products usually can, are sort of a glandular product of the small intestine. And that uh, intestinal growth factor that they have can make a difference in a program working or not working for leaky gut. There are aloe products out there 
usually very expensive, which contain uh, certain substances which help regenerate the, the, the uh, intestinal lining. They're not always needed. Sometimes the expense of those products is over the top and not necessary. Sometimes a leaky gut case will warrant them because the standard treatment may not be enough. They may need so much more additional support that they may need these aloe products. But generally, a leaky gut treatment is a pretty simple thing. A leaky gut program would involve a diet, which is very low allergic. It would involve digestive enzymes to keep the person from continually reacting adversely to their food. And it would have the substances that help the leaky gut to heal. And that would comprise a leaky gut program. Now that leaky gut program, mind you, at the same time is being done in conjunction with a candida elimination program. It leads us to a question that just came in. Is what's important to do first? Is it important? Is it actually, it's, this is phrased, is it more important to first get rid of the candida or first get rid of your leaky gut? Which way will it work? Well, um, if you try to get rid of the candida while you still have leaky gut, you'll fail because as long as you have leaky gut, you never fully get rid of candida because the intestinal tract to that degree is compromised. And unfortunately, vice versa, as long as you have candida, to some degree, you're going to have leaky gut. So that won't work either. So what's, what I have found that does work after trying it both ways is to de develop a program which will work on both issues at the same time, since they're both mandatory to the elimination of the other. I've tried in practice to first get rid of the person's candida and then deal with their leaky gut. And that does seem to be the obvious thing, but that doesn't always work. Because as long as the leaky gut is there, there's the tendency for the candida to relapse to a degree. So in my protocol, what we do is we have, we have protocols which will be done simultaneously with the candida elimination. We address the leaky gut while we're addressing the elimination of candida. That has worked the best. All right, folks, I think that's going to conclude the podcast for today and the subject of leaky gut. I think we've covered the majority of what there is to know about leaky gut. And if anyone has any questions on leaky gut that they feel weren't covered in this broadcast, you're more than welcome to just email them in. I'd be happy to answer them. Until next time. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.